0: 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're looking at a message entitled, Doing the Right Thing the Wrong Way. We're gonna be in verses 1 through 15 there in 2 Samuel 6. And as you turn there, I wanna ask you the question. Have you ever done the right thing the wrong way? Where you had the right motive, but the wrong method? Hopefully you've never been the daughter who decided to bless her dad by filling up his truck's gas tank, only to realize that her dad's truck is a diesel after putting in regular gas. Right thing, wrong way. then there's Robin Hood, who steals from the rich to feed the poor. Right motive, wrong method. Well, tonight we're gonna see King David do the right thing the wrong way. We will see him have the right motive, but employ the wrong method as we come to second samuel 6 we find david finally reigning as king over all israel by this time he's around 30 years old no longer the little shepherd boy saul and his sons are now dead so david begins to establish himself as king one of david's first acts as king if you look there in the previous chapters is to come up against the inhabitants of jerusalem who were the jebusites he takes the land and establishes for the first time his stronghold in which he refers to as the city of david after this the philistines hear about david's new reign they seek to come against him And David inquires of the Lord, as was his custom to do. God promises deliverance, and so David drives back the Philistines there at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 5. In light of this, David will seek to move the Ark of the Covenant to his newly found stronghold to officially make this the capital where all Israel would gather together for worship and to seek the Lord. You can look at some of these initial moves, like kind of how a president would focus on those first 100 days in office. David is reforming things for how they should have been but never were under King Saul. But like Paul speaks of his Jewish brothers in Romans 10... David here shows a zeal for God that was not according to knowledge. And today, tonight, we will seek to learn from his mistakes that we might not only serve God with a right heart, but serve him in the right way. So let's get into our text. Second Samuel chapter 6. It's a pretty good chunk. And so you can follow along in your own Bibles or you can always look to the screen. The Bible says this again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uza and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cistrums, and on cymbals. Verse 6. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Let's pray. Father, tonight as we approach this text, your word, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move into our hearts, that you would grant us insight into your word, that you would grant us the appropriate application into our lives that we might live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said... Amen. Well, from what the text portrays, it seems like David had a good and noble intention. He wants to reestablish and restore the worship system of all Israel, doing something that had been neglected now for more than 40 years under King Saul. And without a doubt, this is something that God would have desired himself as he is the one who gave them the instructions to build this ark some 400 years earlier. You see, the ark represented God's presence among the people. And now that David is king, things can begin to change the way that it was always supposed to be. But what we see from our text is that David went about this the wrong way. He does what he thinks is best in the moment, but not what God had said. He does what seems to be convenient, but not what God had commanded, and the results were quite disastrous. Let me lay out for you the scenario described in our red passage. David gathers together 30,000 choice men of Israel. These were the very men that he had just taken in the previous chapter to defeat the Philistines. David is coming off a double victory against the Philistines And in this last victory They had actually left some of their false gods behind in a hurry We're told there in the fifth chapter that David carries them off Now as had been been done previously There might have been an attempt to once again steal the ark of God away from Israel And so David comes prepared he comes prepared for any attempt to steal it. Now, there's a parallel account in the story of 1 Chronicles. So if you are one of those who likes to kind of go back and forth, we will be kind of periodically here in the 6th chapter of Second Samuel, but also in 1 Chronicles 13 and 15. Now, that account tells us that it wasn't just the 30,000 men, but all Israel had gathered for this monumental event. You see, the ark had been in this location for more than 50 plus years, some would say even up to 100. You see, in 1 Samuel 7, after the ark had been stolen by the Philistines, it was then returned or settled to a small region known as Bilal of Judah, better known as a place called kiriath Jearim. okay? This is about eight miles from Jerusalem, eight miles. This ark had been stored at a particular man's house named Abinadab, who apparently lived on a hill. Now the ark of God, if you've seen Indiana Jones, you already have something in your mind. Uh, it's also known as the ark of the Lord, or the ark of the covenant, the ark of the testimony. But what is it? Well, it symbolically represented God's throne here on earth. It represented his presence. It was for the people of Israel to come to and worship their God. It was a gold-plated chest that would have been about four feet long, two feet wide, and two feet high. There would have been those cherubim angels there representing uh, the, the throne of God. It was about 400 years old by this time that we pick it up in 2 Samuel 6, 400 years old. And inside were the tablets from Mount Sinai, a jar of manna, and then, of course, Aaron's rod that had miraculously budded. Later on, it would be this very ark that would be the center of the Holy of Holies in the temple that Solomon would build. And David has the sons of Abinadab handle the transport of the ark. And they do so on a cart. During the transport, the oxen pulling the cart stumbles and Uzzah reaches out his hand to take hold of it, which at first glance seems like a rather good thing to do. But we find that this angers the Lord and he strikes him dead on the spot. Reading the story... See, things seem to have escalated very quickly. David is now angry and afraid of the Lord, and so the work of the ark ceases. And then this Obed-Edom guy apparently lives pretty close by. They say, hey, uh, let's, just, uh, let's just move it in there for a time. This guy's radically blessed by God, and uh, eventually this is all going to end well. But before we get to the good ending, we're going to study the critical mistakes That were made along the way i mean what's the deal why did all this go down this way why uzzah why did he get the brunt of what happened seemed like he was trying to help in the first place well if you're taking notes tonight there are three major mistakes that david makes that i believe you and i can learn from number one david consulted men rather than god David had a very common practice of inquiring of the Lord. Over the course of 1st and 2nd Samuel, we find nine specific times where that phrase is used that David inquired of the Lord. In fact, in that previous chapter, he had done so regarding going to war with the Philistines. To inquire is to expect, to ask and expect an answer. Yet nowhere do we see that happening in this passage? In fact, we find the opposite. And we find this in First Chronicles. I mentioned that earlier. There is a parallel account, which we should be very grateful for. I love in the Bible when you're reading something, you're like, oh, there's like details somewhere else in the Bible. It's fantastic. Well, in First Chronicles 13, verses 1 through 4, we find some details of the initial gathering. We're told here, then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to the priests and the Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us. And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Good motive. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Notice on the screen, if it seems good to you comes before if it is is of the Lord our God. It may seem small, but I don't think it's without significance. Notice even at the end of verse 4, the emphasis is on that it was right in the eyes of all the people. The Lord is mentioned, but not asked, asked. He is included, but not consulted. And in our own lives, we must never allow the Lord merely to be mentioned, but not consulted. While there's absolute wisdom and safety and godly counsel... This must only come as we have first sought the Lord on the matter, that we have first spent time in His word and brought our inquiries before Him in prayer. Psalm 32 verse eight says, "I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye." You see think David's first mistake here is not going to the counsel of the Lord." now the leader's advice was to go for it and that wasn't bad advice after all remember this was the right thing to do it would be the, even what god would have wanted but the way that david goes about it he's not off to a good start and i believe the whole ordeal could have been avoided if david had sought the counsel of the lord as was his custom David would have been reminded of the right way of doing things. God would have given instruction and warning. It was written in the law. But David did not go back and look through to see how the ark was to be moved. This is good for us to remember. Even when you and I have good intentions for doing something and everyone in life gives, up, gives us the thumbs up You and I have the responsibility to seek the Lord and to seek him first, to make sure that you aren't about to do a good thing in a wrong way. You know, Jesus told us that he gave us the spirit of God to guide us into all truth. We should always beware when it seems that we have it all down. It is when you think you stand that the Bible says, take heed, lest you fall. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. We must not go far from the vine and forget the timeless truth that we can do anything without him one of the dangers of being a christian for a long period of time is that you can learn how to do it there's a grave danger in the christian walk of starting in the spirit but finishing in the flesh galatians 3 3 says are you so foolish sometimes we are having begun in the spirit are you now being made uh, perfect by the flesh you see We can't know, we can't open up David's heart and intention here, but things could have gone very different. As we seek to live for the Lord in all areas of our life, we must not merely mention and include him. We're really good about that. We know the the Christian language, and we're good about including God in our spiritual talk, but have we gone to him? Do we depend fully on his counsel and guidance that he supplies in his word and by his spirit? Or have we just been around so long that we just feel like we know what to do? We should all go back to the word every time. And make sure that we consult him first before going to any other person. Secondly, David attempted to do the Lord's work the world's way he did the lord's work the world's way notice in your bibles in second samuel 6 verse 3 verse 3 says so they set the ark of god on a new cart and brought it out of the house of abinadab and which was on the hill and uza and ohio sure were nice guys the sons of abinadab they drove the new cart the mode of transportation that was picked for the ark was a new cart And as I did originally, you might say, so what? At least it's new. Like, that's nice. It's not like an old cart. The problem was that this was not the method that God had commanded 400 years earlier. Numbers 4.15. Numbers 4.15 says, and when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Koath Who are from the tribe of Levi shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. Pretty clear. Not really a lot of interpretive issues there. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. This was something that was available for them to know at the time, and David, being king, should have known it. It wasn't like this was secret information that they had no access to. A few verses before this in Numbers 4, God instructs them to cover the ark with badger's skins when it is moved. More than likely, this was also probably something that was not done correctly. You see, in the very design by God, the ark was created to be carried. Exodus 25, verses 12 through 14 gives us its design. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings shall be on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The ark had the design of two poles to be carried on their shoulders but i mean come on carry the ark when we have a cart a cart is much more efficient it'll be way easier to trans i mean eight miles all the way to jerusalem it won't be so heavy on our shoulders and we'll be more refreshed when we get there to worship god and we even have these great oxen they'll pull it for us this is a great plan this was not only against the clear command of God, but interestingly enough, it was actually a tactic that the ignorant Philistines used when they stole the ark many years ago, and oh, did it cause them all kinds of trouble. Years earlier, it's, it's almost comical, you've got to go read it, First Samuel 4, 5, and 6, Before the ark found its way to Abinadab's house, the ark of God was captured by the Philistines. They bring it into their temple in one of their uh, capital cities, Ashdod, and God just begins to really mess with them, uh, brings havoc on their nation. I mean, their idols are falling over, everyone's getting tumors, they don't know what's going on. All they know is like, we got to get rid of this thing, and we got to do it quick, and they don't know what to do. They don't have God's law, and so they just Put that thing on a cart. First Samuel 6 tells us they, they did weird things. Look at what they do. Then the men did so. So they took two milk cows. I don't know why that's significant. And hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves, calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart. And the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. These people don't know what they're doing. In fact, from this point, they put it on the cart. They're like, just, just get it out of here. And it rolls its way into a place called Beth Shemesh. And the people there make the mistake of opening the ark. They, they didn't see Indiana Jones. You don't open the ark. <laughs> God kills 50,070 men at Beth Shemesh. This was not something to be taken lightly. And it's not like it didn't have a reputation. But using the cart probably seemed to make the most sense in the moment. They might have thought we can get it to the city of David even quicker. We're going to be able to worship. It's going to be great. We must remember there's no substitute for God's way. When we do His work and we seek to worship Him, it must be on His terms and not ours. Regardless of leadership books we read, financial advisors we listen to, and any other worldly methodology going against God's word, you and I are to go with God's word and God's way because it's always the best. It might be foolishness to the world... But we must put God's word over all. You see, you and I, we can so easily justify actions with spiritual language and then compromise the clear word of God that God gave us. While we don't find ourselves having to move an ark, I don't think that's something that any of us are going to have to deal with, like Uzzah, we will find ourselves in other situations where we must choose. His way or the world's way. Why would we give part of our money to the church? They have what they need. I'm sure that God would want us just to put it into a college fund for our kids. That's a better use. Right thing, wrong way. We will just catch the service online and stay at home. This will be way better for us as a family, and we won't get so mad at each other getting ready and getting to the parking lot. Right thing wrong way. Beware of worldly ways that can creep in as you and I seek to live for the Lord. Thirdly, he chose the wrong people. He chose the wrong people. Verse 3 tells us it was the sons of Abinadab, Uzzah and Ahio. Now they probably seemed like the obvious choice. After all, they've been taking care of the ark for years. It was given to their father, Abinadab, who's probably gone at this point. I mean, this was years earlier. They've, they've grown up with it. I don't know if it was like in their living room or garage or how that worked, but it was there. There was no one with better experience. Maybe they were even like really buff. And they just were like, yeah, this is just, we know what we're doing, we're, we're used to it. Maybe they were like professional cart pullers. They were certified and everything. The problem is that God had already chosen people for this task. Those of the tribe of Levi. This is what David comes to realize the second time he attempts to move the ark. If you're one of those who likes to flip around, First Chronicles 15 now, verse 2 says this, then David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. He gets it this time. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. You see, when speaking to the Levites this second time, David recognizes his error. There was a three-month gap. Unfortunately, though, Uzzah gets the brunt of it. And that's kind of who we always think of in this story. Oh, man, poor Uzzah. And definitely poor Uzzah. Uh, and, and he made the wrong move. He was involved. There's a responsibility on him. He, he should have known God's word. He should have. He should have known uh, about the ark. If anyone knew, I believe though that this was also a result of David's failed leadership. Notice he gets this. David. Under, David would agree. Yeah, this is. This is on me. First Chronicles 15 verse 12 and 13 says he said to them you are the heads of the fathers. this is the second time okay you are the heads of the father's houses of the levites he's speaking to them sanctify yourselves you and your brethren that you may bring up the ark of the lord of god lord god of israel to the place i have prepared it for because you did not do it the first time the lord our god broke out against does it say Uzzah? no it says us Because we did not consult him about the proper order. Uzzah's error was a result first of David's error as king. David should have never put Uzzah there to move the ark in the first place. You see, they handled the holiness of God in a common way. Remember, there was a great crowd gathered, all Israel. And this whole ordeal was done with an irreverence for the word of God. God gave his warning in his word, but his word was not consulted nor followed. There's an old saying that says familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard it? Now, while you don't see any evil intentions from Uzzah, there's nothing in this text that shows, man, Uzzah was, was, you know, had this evil intention. However, it could have been his familiarity with this ark that he had grown up with that then created a lack of reverence for it. We must not be guilty of the same. We must not allow the things of God to become so familiar that we no longer show him the reverence that is due to his name. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and, and trembling, the Bible says, and as much as Jesus now calls us his brethren, in that upper room, he looked at his disciples, and he said, I no longer just call you servants, but he says, I call you friends, but at the end of the day, he is still Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and he is rightly to be revered. Oftentimes, we make decisions only in a way that makes the most sense to us. We can often sacrifice spiritual discernment at the altar of practicality. I wonder how much we might do the right thing the wrong way, where we do the Lord's work in our life in the world's way, where we look at efficiency rather than holiness, and we compromise for the sake of convenience. May you and I learn from David's mistakes and not have this be true in our own lives. You see, we must learn to look at things the way that God looks at them and how He chooses. First Corinthians 1 gives us great insight into this. First Corinthians 1, verses 27 through 29 says but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence see God is very different than us his ways are higher, his thoughts are higher, and altogether different, altogether better. And our job as his followers are to put ourselves under his ways. You know, I recall to mind that story in First Samuel sixteen, David's anointing. There was that timeless lesson that God had to teach Samuel. Remember? When he thought that God would have picked the biggest, baddest brother of David, the sons of Jesse, Jesse didn't even call David, and then finally there's that moment where he says, this must be the Lord's anointed, and God speaks to him in that moment, and he says, I don't see like you see, so I'm not looking at the outward appearance, I'm not looking at what makes the most sense to you, I'm looking at the heart's. See, God's way typically seems foolish to the world, and it's designed to be that way. When the way that we live makes sense to an unbeliever, we might be closer to this danger than we think. The questions then, have the ways of the world crept into our life? I'm speaking to myself. I've been asking God to reveal anything in my own life. Are there things that we do that we have the right motives but the wrong methods one of the ways that i believe we can answer those questions is by looking at who do we consult first with our decision making i think it comes back to that initial mistake that david made that that just set this tone then it just became he he did things his way this is the starting point the questions would be do we go to the lord do we go to the word do we assume what he wants? Have we got in the habit of doing what seems right to us and those around him and, and, and not consult him? And then secondly, do we compromise for what is convenient over what is commanded? With the best intentions, we can allow the philosophies and ideologies of the world to become a just natural part of our work in the kingdom. And like we witnessed here, when we allow that to happen It doesn't end well. Now you might say, as many have, well, why couldn't God just look past it? I mean, they had the best intentions. I mean, look again in your Bibles at verse five. Verse five tells us that they came out, man, they were playing music. They had all the instruments out. This was a joyous celebration. They were worshiping. They were doing a good thing. In our culture, we have this misconception That sincerity of heart is what matters most. As long as they were sincere, it doesn't make any difference what they believe or what they do. There's the common statement, God knows my heart. And that's true. He knows that it's wicked and deceitful and no one can trust it. You see, motives can be deceitful. We don't even, Paul said, I don't even judge myself we must go back to what God has said and that we must do regardless of our supposed good intention. Jesus said in one of those scary verses in all the Bible, not all who say Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, not has the most sincerity about, no, he who does the will of my Father in heaven, we must come to recognize that joy is not always a sign of the Lord's approval. Nor is joy ever an excuse for disobedience. Oh, but they're just so happy about it. Just Look, they have the joy of the Lord. That ain't the joy of the Lord. And so we cannot trust our emotions. We cannot trust our motives. We go back to what is God said, and that I must do. Now, by the end of the day, the results aren't great, other than Obed-Edom. I mean, that guy gets the good end of this whole deal, right? David is left angry and afraid. Reference in your Bibles, verse eight and nine, he's left angry and afraid. This left David with a skewed version of who God was. And not only for David, but also for all the people. Remember, this is a group ordeal. And by the end of it, they go home. And this, this is a bummer. The only blessed person is Obed. This will be the inevitable result of of our lives when we bring worldly methods into kingdom living. We will end up uh, angry with God and even fearful of him. It will skew who he is in our lives. You see, David's anger here was based on confusion He didn't understand why his good intentions weren't good enough. But as we've come to see here that God not only cares about the motives, but the actions that follow. Notice in verse 9, David asks this question of kind of desperation. He says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And it's a question that he should have asked beforehand. If he asked the how... He would have never ended up in the place that he was and unfortunately for a three-month period of time the work ceases the initial illusion was that this process was going to work great man we have this thing on a cart Uza and Ohio man they've been around forever they know what they're doing all's great at first but you see doing God's work the world's way will always be short-lived and you see that with ministries that seek to do God's work, God's uh, the world's way, and they don't last. They don't last. And this is true within our own lives. When you seek to live for the Lord outside of the instructions given by the Lord, it's a harsh task. Living the Christian life your way is exhausting and burdensome. God never intended it to be that way. John says in 1 John 5 that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome, but that will be the result of doing the right thing the wrong way. Well, I think we've spent enough time looking at David's mistakes, but let's look at how he learns from his mistakes. Between verses 11 and 12, There are three months that pass by. You might want to note that down. If you have your own Bible, just put three months. Okay, Three months transpire between verse 11 and verse 12. And then we get to verse 12. Let me read to you again the second attempt with that information in mind. Verse 12 says, Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom. To the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. This time it goes very well. Someone tells King David about Obed Edom's house. He says, this guy has been blessed. This guy's been spoiled. We don't know exactly how that looks, but you could imagine. David's heart is stirred up. He desires that blessing that was over Obed's house. He remembers. He's a man. That's what I wanted for Israel. His desire was always good, but this time his method is very different. You see, what made David the man that you and I love to read about isn't his perfection but it's his willingness to come back to the Lord every time. David was a man on pursuit after the heart of God. And when he missed it, like he did here, he comes back. It seems that over those three months, we don't know, the text doesn't say, but given his actions, we could imagine that David now consults with the Lord. He takes his fear and his anger, he takes that question of how is this going to happen and he consults the Lord, searches his word, and it would have been through that process that God showed him his error. Is that, what, is that not what it's supposed to be like for you and I? And when we come back to the Lord, he shows us the word and we say, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. It was the Lord who turned David's anger and fear now into motivation and gladness, a work that only God could do and the one who comes back to him. And so David tries again, this time his zeal is according to knowledge. David prepares the place for the ark to go when it arrives, and now his good intention is followed by doing it the right way, which was God's way. If you still have your bookmark in First Chronicles 15, or you can look on the screen, we find in these verses kind of uh, a little bit more details. Verse 14 says, so the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders, that was a good one, by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to the singers, accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, cymbals, by raising the voice, you guys get the idea, with resounding joy. Verse 25, So David, the elders of Israel, and the captains over thousands went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. You can keep that slide up. Now the reason I wanted to show this to you is I want you to notice the beginning of verse 26. When God helped... Levites. You see, when you do what God says to do, he will carry out the work by his strength. Though this time it was less convenient and a heavier load, it was yet somehow lighter because God was in it all. Zechariah four six says, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, by his spirit. You see, it is the Spirit of God which sustains the work of God and the life of the people of God. It's not crafty ideas, it's not good cart pullers or talented people. It is by his spirit. And it's amazing how when you just follow what God has said to do in the moment, this is going to be harder, heavier, more difficult. And yet because God's in it, it's lighter. Jesus said that his burden is easy. I always get those mixed up. Burden easy. And then yoke is light. Yeah, I always get them mixed up. But you guys know what I'm talking about. Notice then the effort of the people. Verse 13. When it was done right, it was done right. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Every six steps. We don't know how much longer they had to go, right? There was an eight mile journey. How far did they get on the ark um, or, or on, not on the ark, on the, on that trail, they got to right Nacon's uh, threshing floor, which you could, you could look at it and try to guess, but Every six steps. They would put down the ark. They would sacrifice animals, oxen, fatted sheep. And why? Because God is holy. God is worthy of their worship. And God's worthy of our worship. To the world, surely this would make no sense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. You see, this took a lot of work. This was not the quickest way, this was not the easiest way, but this was the right way because it was the Lord's way. Now these days, God's presence is no longer represented to us by the ark. We haven't gathered here to see the ark or a specific location. Rather, scripture now tells us that you and I are the very temples of the Holy Spirit, which means... Everything we do is to be holy unto the Lord. Our lives are to be lives of worship no matter where we go or what we do. And there is no act of worship that is too much for God or that he is unworthy of no amount of time given or money spent. And David came to understand this more and more as he got older. Toward the end of his life, he made this statement in the last chapter of Second Samuel, Second Samuel twenty four, twenty four, there's another situation that was going on, and he knew God would require worship. It says, Then the king said to Aruna, who was trying to just give him the field, he said, No, but I surely will buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David brought the threshing, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. I think David learned some valuable lessons that day. That our worship is to be a sacrifice. That sometimes God's way in the moment doesn't make the most sense to us. And that's when we sacrifice. Mary, who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus, understood this in John 12 When she came to Jesus before his burial, his his death and burial and resurrection, and she came and took a pound of very costly oil. Maybe you can recall the story to mind. We're We're told that she takes it and anoints the head, not the head of Jesus, but the feet of Jesus, and proceeded to wipe his feet with her hair. And while others like Judas stood around and sneered, At this supposed waste, Jesus received this act of worship and was pleased by not only her motive, but her sacrifice. There's no sacrifice too great, no amount of time too long to worship the Lord. And as a Christian, there's to be no separation between secular and sacred. God said, be holy for I am holy. And may we heed the warning not to handle that which is holy in a common way. Many people over the years have had a real issue with this passage, and understandably so. I found out today, not until about two o'clock, that it's this very passage that is actually in today's one-year Bible reading, uh, which was uh, very confirming for me that I was hearing from the Lord. Uh, I was very thankful for that. But when you just read it devotionally, we've all had that thought, if you've read it, of man, this just seems a little harsh. Like any of us in Uzzah's position, we would have experienced the same thing. You see something falling, right? Have you ever helped someone move? Right? Something's falling, you put your hands up. The problem is he wasn't just moving furniture. Many people have questioned the justness of God regarding this very passage, Man, look at that. Look at the God of the Bible. Just strikes the guy dead, no warning, because he helps. And at first glance, the concern's understandable. Many can look at passages like this that we come to in the Old Testament and think that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. But when we have thoughts like that, for all of us, It shows us that we have far too small of an understanding of the holiness of Almighty God. It reveals that the holiness of God has become all too familiar. But I want to say to you tonight that the God who struck Uzzah dead in that moment is the same God we worship today. The Lord does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is absolutely just in his ways. And so when we come to passages of scripture, and at first glance we say God is not just, we must then rework our thinking, and we must bank on the holiness of God, and the goodness of God, and the justness of God, and we must come back to understand God had his reasons, and he absolutely did. You see, the only reason that you and I tonight, right, we can come into this place, and this place isn't more holy than any other place. You are the ones, the church, us who are filled with the Holy Spirit, when we enter this place, it becomes holy. Things are different. But the only reason that we can come with such boldness, I, I hope that none of you were fearful to come tonight and enter God's presence in worship, Because as Christians, we have boldness and access to the very throne of God. But the only reason we have that access now is not because of our good motives, but because of his great grace. What we must come to realize when we read this passage and we feel for Uzzah, like, man, that's a bummer, he dies and this is crazy. Everyone just goes home sad. We must realize that Uzzah's end is all of our eternal end without Jesus. See, Jesus made the way. By his death, the veil that once separated man from God, on which the Holy of Holies was on one side, and you know the story, you know the story that if a priest were to go in unsanctified, uh, not consecrated, and with sin, he would have been struck on the spot. God warned this in his word. The Holy of Holies... With the ark of God was the place that no man should enter except once a year the high priest going in to offer the sacrifice of atonement. This was a big deal. But Jesus dies on that cross and the veil was torn. For he himself, the Bible says, is our peace. He broke down the middle wall of separation and putting death the enmity that was between us and god he reconciled us to god and we who were once afar off we've been brought near by the blood of jesus the only reason that we're able to come into this place tonight and not just be like uzzah is because of the blood of christ for through him we both have access by one spirit toward the father When it comes to the presence of God, we would all be like Uzzah. Yet now we can draw near, the Bible says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We can hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. I pray that we would see the Lord tonight. Not who we have made him to be for who he is, that we would see him like Isaiah did, high and lifted up, and like Isaiah heard the angels singing, may we too sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. The author of Hebrews tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so may you and I tonight cling to Christ who is our life. Trust in him today. Jesus said, you shouldn't fear the one who can only kill your body but cannot kill your soul. He said, fear him who can not only kill your body but cast your soul into hell. Very thankful for Jesus. We don't have to fear as believers filled with the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. I love that picture. We don't have to tiptoe in the presence of God. We don't have to make sure that the we put the cart just right, and, or, the, or not the cart, but holding the ark just right. Man, I don't know about you, but when you read the Old Testament, it, it's like, man, that, that one must have been stressful. The sacrifices... But Jesus has made the way. And if you've come into this place tonight or you're watching online and you don't know Jesus, all you have to do is come. You come to him. You trust in him. Hebrews twelve twenty eight says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. May our access to the throne of God never become familiar. But may we always serve him. Notice serving God acceptably. There is an acceptable way to serve God. And he's the one that gets to lay it out in his word. And we are just to respond in reverence and godly fear. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this a radical story here in Second Samuel. Lord, tonight we confess our sin. We confess our sin for at times handling that which is holy with common hands. God, I pray that you would put in us, Lord, a reverence and a fear for you that would cause us to always go to you first. That we would not turn to anybody, and especially not what we think, but we would go to your word. God, we ask that we would never compromise your commandments for the sake of convenience. And God, we thank you that you have called us to serve you. And so here we are as those living sacrifices desiring to be holy and acceptable to you. Lord, it's our reasonable service to respond in a life of worship. God, we thank you for your grace in our life. We thank you for the example of David. Lord, even in his mistakes, Lord, you you chose to record them that we might learn. God, we thank you that... You tell us if we come and confess our sins to you that you're faithful and just to not only forgive us, but cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, like David, would you help us to be a man after God's heart? That as we pursue you, when we do fail, when we do fall, that we would get right back up and come with boldness to the throne of grace because you made a way You gave us access. It is in your grace in which we stand here today. God, would you give us tonight a greater understanding of your holiness, of who you are. And so God, we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.